You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Our first lesson comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, which you can find on page 955 of your pew Bible. And as we love to say each week, if you do not have a Bible of your own at home, please take one with you after the service. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The word of the Lord. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Our gospel reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 2 to verse 9. You can find that on page 844 in your pew Bible. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Once again, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new and visiting for the first time, welcome to Redeemer. If we haven't met, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. I was talking to some of the musicians earlier, and we were debating whether we just skip the sermon and sing for another half an hour. I think that sounds pretty good. We'll see how the sermon goes. You might be wishing for that in about 15 minutes. Um, Hey, if you haven't been with us over the past few weeks, just to kind of catch us all up together, today is the sixth and final Sunday of the season of Epiphany, where we consider how the identity of Jesus is revealed. 
And during this time, we've been contemplating how the identity of Jesus relates to our own identity. And we've recognized along the way that you and I have this tendency to locate our identity in all sorts of places. The work we do, our body image, our sexual appetite, our money, our possessions, our reputation, all of these sources of identity that so many people make use of are predicated on one central idea that we will explore today. It's an idea that's so common today that it's taken for granted. And the idea is this, you are your own. You belong to no one but yourself. As we begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's 1630 in Germany, and a man sits in a small room in front of a wood stove reflecting on the meaning of life, because that's what you do in Germany in the winter. And he thinks to himself that the German villages in the countryside that he has recently seen are more beautiful when they're designed by a single architect than they are when they're sort of like a hodgepodge of competing architectural schemas. And this makes him think about how his own beliefs, his own internal architecture, uh, is sort of this assortment of ideas that he's picked up along the way from a variety of schools throughout life. And so he embarks on a mental exercise. First, clear the deck, delete everything. Then rebuild his beliefs from the ground up by himself, not allowing himself to be influenced by anybody else or anything that he's read or studied or been, been taught. And hours later into this mental exercise, he writes down this sentence, I am thinking, therefore I exist. And he considered that while he disbelieved nearly every other thought that passed through his mind, he was confident, absolutely confident about this one thing. And therefore, he made it the foundation, the first principle of his philosophy. Some of you who have uh, taken courses on philosophy are probably ahead of me and you know who this is. The man's name was Rene Descartes. And from him, we inherit the phrase, I think, therefore I am. And he could not possibly have known it at the time, but he birthed the underlying principle that would go on to dominate the modern age. I know things are true because I think them and I feel them inside. Where is truth? It's inside me. Now, fast forward 50 years, and you encounter the English philosopher John Locke, who builds upon Descartes' ideas when he writes, quote, every man has a property in his own person. Nobody has any right to this but himself. The labor, labor of his body and the work of his hands, we might say, are properly his. Now, that's sort of an old-fashioned English way of describing what people would go on to call later possessive individualism. The logic goes, if I own something, then I can do whatever I want with the thing, right? If I have a coffee mug and I own it, it's mine, then I can do whatever I want with my coffee mug. I can drink coffee out of it if I want, or I can do something else. I can eat ice cream out of it at 11.43 p.m., as I may have done last night, right? I can do whatever I want. It's my coffee mug. Back off. Don't tell me what to do with my coffee mug, right? I own myself. No one can tell me what to do with myself. So I know things are true because I think them and feel them within. And I own myself. I can do what I want with myself. So the French gave us Descartes and the English gave us Locke. Next, the Italians. The Italians gave us Pica della Mirandola. We'll call him Pico for short because I think that's what he went by in middle school. So Pico... 
Pico writes a fictional drama with God and Adam having a conversation in the Garden of Eden. And in this fictional conversation, Pico writes, God says to Adam, but you, constrained by no limits, may determine your nature for yourself according to your free will, in whose hands we have placed you. So Pico took the attribute that we might call self-determinism, which had previously been thought to belong only to God, and he gave it to human beings. As Christopher Walken put it, we are all gods now, with the freedom and prerogative to say, I am who I am. So I know things are true because I think and feel them within. I own myself so I can do what I want with myself. I define myself. No one else can define me. And up through the 14 and 15 and 1600s, this kind of individualism was only available to the aristocracy, to those who could afford it and, had who enough, and who had enough power to get away with it. If you need an example, you might think about a character like the Marquis de Sade, the French aristocrat from whom we get that terrible word sadism, deriving pleasure from inflicting pain on other people. His legacy was pretty terrible. He used this philosophy, this philosophy of individualism, to excuse and justify beating his housemaid and sexually assaulting multiple women. He was eventually arrested, imprisoned for sex crimes, and ultimately committed to an insane asylum. Now, what's the point? What we need to see here is that this philosophy of individualism that is developing through these ages is really developing amongst the wealthy and the powerful. And the logic of the age was that the common people, the peasants, the soldiers, the servants, the working class folk, well, they needed to be dutiful and obedient to their masters and their leaders and their kings and their lords and dukes and duchesses. The aristocracy has the right to dabble in philosophies of self-possession and self-determination. The underclass needs to get on with it, do the work, keep the country running. That was then. This is now. America was founded on the idea that there is no aristocracy, or, if we're a little more honest, the idea that everyone is an aristocrat, right? Now, of course, that is historically inaccurate, isn't it? Because America was founded while using Africans as the enslaved underclass. But the ideals of self-possession and self-determination are baked into the American pie. I know things are true because I think them and feel them within. I own myself so I can do what I want with myself. I define myself. No one else can define me. And to a society founded on these ideals comes the final piece of the puzzle, the final brick in the wall. Expressive individualism, which is just very simply, I must be free to express myself in, in order to authentically be myself. If I am prevented from authentically expressing myself, then I can't really be a true self, right? Now you might, just, just to review, let me name those four once more. I know things are true because I think them and feel them within. I own myself so I can do what I want with myself. I define myself. No one else can define me. I must be free to express myself authentically in order to truly be myself. You might call these the four pillars, or a bit more sarcastically, the four horsemen of the identity apocalypse that shape our contemporary understanding of what it means to be a human individual. If culture is the water in which we swim, this is the water. 
And I have no idea, I can't read your mind up until this point, whether that history lesson was fascinating or mind-numbingly boring. I don't really care, honestly, and neither should you, because the point is to understand how we got here, to understand why reading 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, is so absurdly implausible today. The text reads, you are not your own. (laughs) How absurd, how implausible. Of course we are our own. That's in the water. It's it's a baked-in assumption for everyone. Now, we're going to talk about this this concept, you are not your own. And as we talk about it, we're going to do so from a couple different angles. We're going to talk about the design of ownership, the burden of ownership, and the practice of ownership. Okay? The design, the burden, and the practice. Let's begin with design. Let's, Let's do a little bit more history, but let's go further back. Further back through time, all the way to the very beginning. If you're going to talk about ownership, and you're going to talk about it from a Christian point of view, you actually have to go all the way back before the dawn of creation to God himself. You've got to go to the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist in what you might call mutual belonging, inextricable from one another. The Father belongs with the Son and the Spirit. The Spirit belongs with the Father and the Son. The Son belongs with the Father and the Spirit. You cannot pull any one of these three apart from each other. And within the context of that mutual belonging, the original community, that is the Trinity, there is also mutual submission, mutual honor shared between the three as one. And out of this original belonging within the Holy Trinity, There is created humanity and everything else. And humanity is therefore, as a reflector of the image of God, created for mutual belonging. You've got to understand, human beings are not created to only reflect the image of the Father or only reflect the image of the Son. Humanity is created to reflect the Trinity. And therefore, it is baked into humanity, this need for and dependence upon belonging. Now, we see this as God calls a people to himself throughout the biblical story, especially in the Old Testament. God draws the nation of Israel together, and we especially see this as he leads them out of slavery in Egypt into the wilderness where they become his people, and they're on their way to the promised land. And God says things to his people like this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. There's an ownership word. And we see the same language echoed in describing the church in the New Testament. In 1 Peter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. There's that ownership word again. If you're thinking to yourself right now, that's a little abstract. What does it mean to be a people for God's own possession? If you don't have to look any further than the way that Jesus relates to God the Father during his earthly life and ministry, you encounter Jesus saying these mysterious things all the time like, I can only do what the Father tells me. It seems that the Son is living a life of of not only obedience but, but possession. God directs him. God the Father directs him. He's owned by God the Father. You, you also see it echoed in uh, moments when Jesus says these very mysterious things like, it's better for me to leave and send the Holy Spirit to you. That, to me, has always been one of the most perplexing and frustrating things that Jesus says. Because 
Maybe you've had moments like this. I have lots of moments where I think I disagree. It is better for Jesus to be with me in the flesh right now than for me to navigate what it means to have the Holy Spirit, right? Have you ever thought this? Some of you have. And so what is Jesus getting at? Jesus is saying in Pentecost, in the sending of the Holy Spirit, the deep belonging and ownership, being one of God's possessions is meant to be a reality that dwells within you. Why? So that no matter what happens, no matter where you go, you will know that God is with you and that you belong to him. And therefore, you will know deep within you that you do not bear the burden of creating your own meaning in life. You don't bear the burden of purpose. You don't bear the burden of identity. That's the design. That is the design for human identity. It originates in the Holy Trinity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is imbued, it is given to humanity in creation. And those who follow Jesus today are to experience that in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's the design. Now, the problem is when that design is rejected, the burden of responsibility for identity is shifted from God's shoulders to our shoulders. We see this played out first in the nation of Israel. Before we even get to the New Testament, before we even get to the 21st century and John Locke and Pico and all the rest, we actually see it first in the Old Testament where God draws a nation to himself. He leads them through the wilderness. He, and he brings them into the promised land. And what do they say? They say, hey God, this has been great so far. Um, we'd like a king, like a human king to rule over us. And God says, you don't need that. You've got me. And Israel says, that's great. Um, once more, we'd like a human king, please. We want to belong to another person. We don't want to just belong to you. And God, you sort of sense God shrugging his shoulders and going, don't say I didn't warn you. Okay, here you go. And so from Saul to David to Solomon and all the way through the Israelite kings, does it go well? It does not go well. What's happening in God's people God's people are saying in their politics, we don't want to be God's possession. We want to be our own possession. We used to belong to Egypt and that was bad. We can all agree it was bad. But now we're having this like weird existential experience of only belonging to God and it's really difficult. What's easier would be just to kind of belong to ourselves. So reject God, we'll just be our own people with our own leaders and our own rulers that we have to submit to. And the problem is that as Israel goes through this, like, who do we belong to crisis played out through the Old Testament, things really go off the rails. The burden that comes with all that freedom, that comes with individualism, it's the burden of identity and purpose and meaning and belonging and everything. It's too much for Israel to bear. It's too much for us to bear as well. And this has been the theme that we've been exploring over the past weeks. And don't worry, I'm not going to try to summarize five sermons from the past few weeks. Uh, but if you missed any of them, I encourage you to go online and listen in and kind of catch up so we can grow together. But we've talked about finding identity in work, finding identity in body image and sexual appetite and money and possessions and reputation. As the burden of identity shifts to our own shoulders it begins to create all of the symptoms that plague modern society. And here are just a few, not an exhausted list, uh, exhaustive list, but this sense of being hurried, never having enough time to do the, all the things that we feel we're supposed to do. This, I, this anxiety that cripples so many of us, the anxiety that so many of you woke up with this morning, 
the frustration and boredom that we feel, the stress, and the addiction to comfort-seeking that we feel. You know, so many of us struggle with addiction. Some of us struggle with addiction in obvious ways that are obviously destructive, right, like drugs or alcoholism or pornography. But most of us struggle with addiction to far more seemingly benign things, like I just want to be comfortable because I find life to be so unbearably uncomfortable, right? Alan Noble is a, an author who describes this, this dynamic that plagues modern society as zucosis, which I thought was a made-up word until I did a little bit more research. It's actually, zucosis is a word used by biologists to describe something that afflicts animals that spend their whole lives living in a zoo. Have you ever gone, for those of you who have gone to a zoo before, have you ever noticed like at the lion exhibit or the grizzly bear exhibit, some really large animal in a relatively small, confined space, restlessly pacing, either walking in a circle or just kind of pacing back and forth, back and forth. And you can almost tell on the, I mean, I don't know how to read a lion's face, but you can almost tell on the face of the creature, they're not there. They're just pacing and moving restlessly. Biologists call this zucosis. They're in a human-designed environment. They're actually in an environment that has been designed with careful, attentive detail to be comfortable for them. And yet, it's not a place where they thrive. You and I are living in a human-designed environment, right? At this point in history, humans have really left their imprint on society, right? Like we're not living in the wild, in caves. We have designed a society for ourselves. And yet, the society we have designed for ourselves is not bringing about human flourishing. And most people suffer from a kind of zucosis internally, in their minds. You ever find yourself caught in these restless, kind of this like mental restless pacing where you're stuck in anxiety or you're stuck in anger or you're stuck in stress or you're stuck in boredom and you find yourself just repeating these mental patterns over, thinking about the same thing over and over again. And when you realize you're doing that, you think, oh no, and it just drives it a level deeper. Now you're worried about the fact that you're worried, right? And (laughs) this is a uniquely human problem. Our cognitive patterns are like creatures in a cage. It's not how we're meant to live. Only people in individualist societies talk about, quote, trying to feel alive. Isn't that interesting? Let's just stop and and think about that for a moment together. People today use this phrase all the time. I'm just trying to feel alive. Maybe you use that. Maybe you know someone close to you who has said something like this before. Like, I just want to feel alive. The irony is only living people can talk about trying to feel alive. And so if you're trying to feel alive, you already are. And the bad news is, this is it. That feeling you're feeling, that's what it feels like to feel alive, right? Oh, no. With limitless freedom comes limitless potential to harm yourself. With limitless freedom comes limitless potential to harm yourself. Limitless freedom brings limitless potential to destroy your own life. Now, that's pretty bleak. A lighter, kind of more humorous way to talk about it would be what our family calls too much birthday. For those of you with young children or have ever grew up in a family with other, you know, younger siblings, you might already know where this is going. How do you celebrate a young child's birthday? Well, the way most families tend to do it is when the kid wakes up in the morning, you ask them, what do you want to do? 
right? And then you do whatever the kid says. The kid can eat whatever he or she wants to eat. They can do whatever activity the kid wants to do. The burden of responsibility for making all the decisions about how the day goes shifts from the grown-up to the child. Now the child bears the burden of making all the decisions for the day. How does the child do with those decisions? Not very well. And by the end of the day, after eating anything they want to eat, opening all the presents they want to open and doing all the fun activities they want to do, that child is just a picture of joy and peace and gratitude. No, the child is a wreck, is a miserable wreck. They're lying on the floor fussing and whining. And the good, wise parent knows you need to go to bed, you need to wake up and drink a green smoothie and do some chores, right? <laughs> and then you'll be happier. <laughs> Isn't that strange? Now, at this point, we need to deal with the objection in the room because as I'm talking about, those of you who are a little more on the cynical side are thinking, wait a minute. I see where this is going. You see, I, the same spiel that we're talking about here is used by dictators to justify their rule and their oppression. Dictators love to say things like, freedom is a burden. We'll just take that for you. You were made to be ruled. You were made to obey. You might think about the first Avengers movie where the nemesis Loki kind of arrives on planet Earth. He's there to like basically conquer the world. And he shows up in Germany. It's his first public appearance to the human race. And he walks out to a crowd in a public square and he says to all of them, kneel before me. Nobody kneels. So he screams out in his like super powered volume voice, kneel. And everybody kind of haltingly gets down on their knees in front of him. And then he gives this speech. Is this not simpler? Is this not your natural state? It's the unspoken truth of humanity that you crave subjugation. The bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy in a mad scramble for power, for identity. You were made to be ruled. In the end, you will always kneel. I'd just like to thank Marvel for writing that scene so that it would fit so perfectly into our sermon today. <laughs> it's brilliantly written. And what happens next? This old German man who's, you, without saying it overtly, the viewer kind of goes, oh, this is a guy who survived World War II. This old man stands up and he says really quietly, not men like you. And Loki, the, the villain says, there are no men like me. And the old man says, yeah, there are always men like you. It's a brilliantly written scene. And of course, it's taking place in Germany. Echoes of World War II are in the background. And the next thing that happens is Captain America shows up and like hits him in the face with the stars and stripes, right? It's like not a very subtle scene, right? Oppression, rule, subjugation, America, freedom. Now, the cruel twist for those of us living in the United States today is the lie that we belong to ourselves is a lie that is designed to cover up the reality that we're already slaves. You belong to the state. You belong to your phone. You belong to your job. You belong to the consumer economy. You may belong to your political ideology. 
If there's something in you that resists that any of those things might be true, just quit any one of them. Try. Can you quit them? Can you walk away? Right? Just don't have a phone. Can't do it. Just don't participate in the consumer economy. Can you opt out? You cannot. There's no exit. You remember that line, the greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world he didn't exist? Remember that line? You might reframe it as the greatest trick the economy ever played was convincing you that you were free, when in reality you are its slave. And so as we believe in our own freedom, along comes the church. Ah, the church. And along comes Jesus. And Jesus and his messengers, the church, say all kinds of offensive things. Jesus does ask you to kneel. And our natural American response is, not to men like you. And Jesus may say something like, there there are no men like me. And our natural response is, yeah, there's always men like you. You're just another, just another religion that basically exists to manipulate and oppress people, to control them. And so I wonder, is Jesus just like every other authority, only out to use you and manipulate you and diminish your freedom for his own gain? Why should you trust Jesus? Why should you trust the church? Well, if you think about the text that we read earlier, it's actually quite an interesting sentence. It begins with that very offensive phrase, you are not your own. Then there's a comma, and then there's another phrase that goes right along with it. You were bought with a price. And so the invitation that you're being asked to consider today is is this, that Jesus comes to you and he does come as someone who is Lord and who asks you to kneel. Someone who comes to you and says, you're not your own, you belong to me. And just as the sputtering rejections and objections start coming out of our mouths, Jesus lays down in front of us in complete abject submission and subjugation and says, I'm going to let you rule over me. I'm going to let you be in charge. Let's see how it goes. And what does humanity do with the God who comes and lays down? Humanity takes that God and drives some nails through his hands and to his feet and puts them on a cross and hoists them up to laugh at him, right? This is God coming to us saying, let's try you being in charge. And after the mystery of Jesus giving himself for us, dying on a cross, having his blood spilled all over the ground, and then wondrously and miraculously rising from the dead, then Jesus returns to the conversation and says, okay, we tried you being in charge. How did it go? Now I'm offering again to come to you as Lord. Now will you kneel? Knowing that before I ask you to kneel, first I lay myself down in front of you. This is God coming to us saying in the clearest and most obvious and literal and physical way possible, I am not out to use you. I am not out to manipulate you. I am not out to oppress you. I am not trying to subjugate you for my own gain. I am for you. And I'm way better to you than you are to yourself. And I will be a far kinder king 
than you are to yourself. And belonging to me will be far more beneficial to you than you belonging to yourself. And so you might imagine Jesus coming to you and no matter where you are in life right now, Jesus gives you an offer on the table that actually fits your situation. If you are someone that has come this morning with a white knuckle grip on your own identity, I am my own. Nobody gets to have a say over me. And your guard and your shield and your force field is up. I'm not going to let the church break through that wall. Okay? I am my own. Jesus' invitation for you is to surrender. Would you loosen the grip on your identity? Would you let me hold it? My grip's actually a little bit stronger. (laughs) To the person, on the other hand, though, who actually comes this morning, and you actually don't feel like you have a grip on anything. You don't feel like you hold your identity. You feel like the whole, whole life recently for you has just been getting kicked around. And you palpably feel that you're enslaved to the state and your phone and your job and the economy and political ideologies, and none of them are ruling you very well. And you're tired of getting used and you're tired of being subjugated and you're tired of being oppressed. Then Jesus doesn't come to you and say, surrender. Jesus comes to you and kicks down the door and says, I am your liberator. I'm here to set you free. You see, those who know that they are enslaved, those who know that they are impressed, To them, God is always their friend. God is always the friend of the oppressed. He's always the one who comes and says, let me lift you up. Let me set you free. But to those who have a tight grip on their own life, Jesus comes not primarily as rescuer, unless you want to think of him as a rescuer from yourself, but he comes and says, would you let go? Try it. It's not, the fall's not going to be as far as you're worried. Now, what's interesting is that the way Jesus brings this invitation to us is it's really an invitation to see things as they already are. Because this whole idea that we belong to ourselves, the offer of Jesus is that was never real to begin with. You've always belonged to me. You just don't know it. Now, we get a glimpse of this in the transfiguration that happens on the top of that mountain with Peter and James and John and Jesus. A very mysterious passage in the Gospel of Mark. Some of you might not know this, but today is what's called in the church liturgical calendar Transfiguration Sunday. Churches all over the world are reading that passage this morning. Churches throughout history have read that passage this morning and contemplated what it means that just for a moment, three of the disciples saw Jesus as he really is. They caught a glimpse of reality. The veil dropped or parted just for a moment. The reality is, is that as they saw Jesus as he really was and is, so over time, they began to understand themselves as they really were and are. 1 John 3, verse 2 puts it this way. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be like has not yet appeared. But we know that when he, Jesus, appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Only as you behold the face of Jesus does your own face come into focus. The logic of our current cultural moment is, if you want to know who you are, look in the mirror, both literally and metaphorically. By looking at yourself, you know who you are. The logic of the gospel is, oh no. Only as you behold the face of Jesus do you truly understand who you are. Does your own face come into focus? Only as you behold the face of your creator 
Do you become the creature you are made to be? Only as you behold the face of your lover do you know that you are truly loved. Rowan Williams puts it this way. You have an identity, not because you invented one or because you have a hard little core of selfhood that is unchanged, but because you have a witness of who you are. What you don't understand or see, the bits of yourself that you can't pull together into a convincing story are all held in a single gaze of love. You don't have to work out and finalize who you are and have been. You don't have to settle the absolute truth of your history or your story. The eyes of the present that never goes away. All that you have been and are, are still present and real and are held in that unifying gaze. What is he saying? He's saying only as Jesus looks at you and only as you look back at him, does your own identify, identity solidify. Do you know who you actually are? Maybe for the very first time. There's a really old catechism. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a catechism is just an old-fashioned word for kind of a question and answer format of understanding the beliefs and traditions of, of the Christian faith. And this old catechism opens with this question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, all of these, all of this identity problem and identity practice that we've been talking about over the past few weeks as a church together really is summed up in this, that you're not your own. You were bought with a price. You belong body and soul to Jesus. And that's not bad news. It's good news. It's actually a comfort. And it's actually a comfort to all of the anxiety and stress and frustration and boredom and fear and everything else that makes life today so unlivable. You know, thinking back to Rene Descartes sitting in that little German cabin in the dead of winter trying to reconstruct his identity and a philosophy of life from the ground up, and I'm thinking about his observation that German villages are more beautiful when they're designed by one architect than when they're designed by many. And that's actually true of most things, right? If anything's going to be coherent, it needs one architect, not competing visions or versions. The architectural layout of a city that's been designed by multiple architects makes no sense. And therefore, the people who live in that city will fail to thrive. The architecture of your thoughts and your feelings and your beliefs and your practices for most of us are this mixed-matched, sort of hodgepodge, mixed-up collection of things like possessive and self-determined expressive individualism and Christianity. And it's a mixture. It's confusing. It's like running two operating systems on the same hard drive at the same time. It's like having two bosses that keep giving you conflicting orders. So how do you move forward in freedom? How do you have one identity and not competing identities? And how do you have one set of internal architecture in your thoughts and feelings and beliefs and then outward in your embodied practices? Where do you begin? Where's the exit? The exit is this. You begin to meditate on the face of God. And that's not some abstract thing to just believe in. It's actually a practice. You become still and quiet like a child. Drop the grown-up act for a minute. You are a little child before God. You become still, you become quiet, you begin to drop and strip away all of these other identities that you've put on. 
And as I do this, I begin to rest secure in the grace and love and mercy and affection of God. And as I enter into that face-to-face relationship, I realize that what I know is true is actually not something inside me. Y'all, sometimes I don't know what's inside me, but it's probably not true. (laughs) And I realize instead that Jesus is the one who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And that what I know to be true is actually bound up in him even more than it's inside of me. And I realize that I don't own myself. I belong to Christ. And that's actually even better than belonging to myself. And I realize that I don't define myself. Jesus defines me. And that's good because my self-definitions are either randomly and weirdly grandiose or cripplingly shameful, usually ping-ponging back and forth between the two. But Christ's definition of me is actually stable and secure. And I realize I'm free to express the love of Jesus, which is way better for me and everybody else in the world than me expressing my identity. Which would you rather? You and I go get coffee together and I express my identity at you or I express the love of Jesus for you? Which would you rather have? It is no coincidence that one of the most common blessings in the Christian faith includes the image of God looking at us in the face face-to-face with God. Numbers chapter 6, the Lord gives Moses a blessing for Aaron and his sons. It's called the Aaronic blessing. It goes like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.